Good day to you all. My name is John Aykroyd and the title of my talk is The Invention of the Aeroplane near Scarborough at the time of Trafalgar. This rather long-winded title usually raises a few eyebrows. Oh come on, people think. Surely it was the Wright brothers who did this. Good grief, what's this old fool on about? The Wrights could never have been anywhere near Scarborough on the east coast of Yorkshire, and what they did happened around a hundred years after the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. Well, as to that, let's see what Wilbur Wright had to say about this. In 1909, in a speech to the Aero Club in London, Wilbur is reported to have said, about a hundred years ago, an Englishman, Sir George Cayley, carried the science of flying to a point which it had never reached before, and which it scarcely reached again during the last century. Now, the Wrights knew more than most about what Cayley had done, but even so, their knowledge of his work was rather limited. My hope is to persuade you that this man, Cayley, yes, this Yorkshire baronet who lived near Scarborough, not only defined the modern aeroplane concept some six years before Trafalgar, but also flew his first example of it successfully in the year before that sea battle. What Cayley had done, the detail of it, only began to emerge in the 1920s. This started with the discovery of Cayley's aeronautical notebooks at the family seat at Brompton in 1926. Brompton lies about 10 miles slightly south of west on the A170 Scarborough to Pickering Road. The discovery was made by John Edmund Hodgson, the honorary librarian of the Royal Aeronautical Society. He gave a lecture on this to the Society, which appeared in its journal in 1933. In 1951, Lawrence Pritchard, the Society's secretary, produced a detailed biography of Cayley. In 1953, the Royal Aeronautical Society established a new lecture, the Cayley Memorial Lecture, to be given annually, and it was entirely appropriate that it was Pritchard, in fact, who gave the inaugural lecture at the Bruff branch of the Society in late 1953. The lecture was published in the following year, 1954. After that, more material appeared from Brompton, and this was all written up by Charles Harvard Gibbs Smith, the eminent aeronautical historian, in a book for the Science Museum, published in 1962. Here is Cayley in the only known portrait of him. It was painted by Henry Perronet Briggs and exhibited at the Royal Academy in 1841. It is now the, in the National Portrait Gallery's collection. Cayley was born on the 27th of December, 1773 and died at Brompton on the 15th of December, 1857 12 days before his 84th birthday. This current year of 2023 is therefore the 250th anniversary of his birth. The official line is that Cayley was born in paradise. Now here, we're looking northward across Scarborough's South Bay and to the right you can see the harbour, the headland with Scarborough Castle along the top, and at the far left, there's the tower of St. Mary's Parish Church sticking up over the horizon. Now, move slightly to the right and you're in the graveyard containing the grave of Anne Bronte. And a little bit further right and downwards, you'll see a white house. Now, in ancient times, that area was occupied by Cistercian monks who established a small walled garden there, which they called paradise. So the name has stuck for that area and the White House there is Paradise House. Here is Paradise House and it carries the regulation blue plaque announcing this as the birthplace of Sir George Cayley. Unfortunately 
This doesn't quite agree with something Cayley is reported to have said. Here we've moved more into the centre of town, on St Nicholas Street, some way from Paradise. Behind the camera and to the right is the current town hall, but looking further along the street on the left is the site of where the old Scarborough Town Hall used to be. Now, Cayley stood for Parliament. In fact, he got in and stood as an MP for Scarborough from 1832 to 1835. But at a hustings meeting on the steps of the old Scarborough Town Hall, he's reported to have said, I was born not a hundred yards from this spot. Now, taking literally, you might think, yes, he must have been born somewhere near St Nicholas Street. On the other hand, it could have been merely a rhetorical flourish, meaning I am simply one of you. I think we can agree, however, that he was born somewhere in Scarborough. Now let's look at his education. He attended a board school in York, but his mother recognised his strong interest in all things scientific. And so in 1791, she moved him to a private tutor in Nottingham, George Walker, who was a fellow of the Royal Society. Now, it turned out that Walker had an attractive daughter, Sarah, and Cayley's mother began to suspect, so, so the story goes, that something was happening there. And so she moved him in the following year to Southgate, near London, to study under George Cadogan Morgan. Cayley's grandfather, the fourth baronet, was long-lived, but his father suffered from ill health, so only held the title for about 18 months before he died. Consequently, George Cayley, at the tender age of 19, became the sixth baronet in 1792, and with it inherited the Brompton estates and the status and income that went with it. He married Sarah Walker in 1795 by special license at Edmonton, and the marriage produced six daughters and three sons. Now, Cayley was a generous man. Uh, he's reckoned to be the first major landowner to initiate agricultural allotments, giving one acre of tillage land to his Brompton labourers. Later in life, when the West Yorkshire miners fell on hard times, he was the first to put his hand in his pocket and establish a relief fund. He founded a philosophical society in York and later one in Scarborough to discuss current issues and new developments. He was a founder member of the British Association for the Advancement of Science. He established the Polytechnic Institution in Regent Street, London, where new ideas, new techniques, new materials and things could be exhibited. This later became the Regent Street Polytechnic, and that was later, in more recent times, absorbed into the University of Westminster. Here is the hall at Brompton, more or less as it was in Cayley's day. The Cayley family vacated it many years ago, and it's now a school for children with special educational needs run by North York's County Council. A stone wall surrounds the hall and in it is set this stone-built workshop where Cayley carried out his construction work assisted by a local mechanic, Thomas Vick. In the foreground you can see the main road through Brompton, the Pickering Road. On the workshop's wall is this green plaque announcing Cayley as the father of aeronautics and telling us that here the aeroplane was defined for the first time circa 1799 to 1855. This is in considerable contrast to the whopping great memorial to the Wright brothers at Kill Devil Hills near Kitty Hawk. On the other side of the Pickering Road is Brompton Dale, a lovely little valley ideally suited for glider trials. Here I'm showing one of Cayley's inventions, 
a hot air engine of 1807. The idea is that air is heated in an external boiler and pushed under pressure into the cylinder to drive the piston. This is rather less weighty than the steam engine, which of course has to carry a big tank of water around to provide the working fluid for that. By now, Cayley was searching for a lightweight engine for his aeronautical work and in the same year of 1807 he produced this little gunpowder engine shown in his sketch here. The idea is that pinches of gunpowder are dropped into the little funnel in the middle of the picture, drop down the pipe, are ignited by the flame at the bottom and the exploding gases pass into the cylinder to drive the piston. The bow and string mechanism is to provide the return stroke. Now Cayley designed it, built it, tested it and assessed it. And then we hear no more about it in his notebook. I can only assume he realised it was really rather impractical. Cayley's engine problem is graphically illustrated by this diagram produced by Peter Stokes in 1970. What we have is on the horizontal axis the years from about 1800 to the early 1900s. The vertical axis shows the weight of the engine in pounds per horsepower produced. If you look at the top left, Cayley's era, you see that we're talking about weights of around 400 pounds per horsepower produced. Zap down the shaded area to the Wright brothers on the right there, and you'll see that their little pet petrol engine, the internal combustion engine, is running at about 10 pounds per horsepower. There's therefore a factor of 40 difference. So for this reason, Cayley was stumped on the engine front and his significant aeroplanes remain gliders. Despite Cayley's problems with engines, he was looking for lightweight equipment for his aeronautical projects and in 1808 he produced the forerunner of the bicycle wheel, the tension wheel. This can be seen in the top picture where you have a thin rimmed wheel supporting the axle not with solid spokes but with fine cordage. The idea is that as the wheel rolls it's the top cords that are in tension and support the wheel. The bottom two cords are in compression and just sag. In the bottom picture you can see there's a key arrangement for tightening the cordage to get the correct tension in all the cords. Here is another of Cayley's inventions, what he called the Universal Railway, a forerunner of the Caterpillar tractor. Now Although he patented this, many of his inventions he did not patent and felt that they should be freely available, as he put it, to those less fortunate than himself. The son of one of Cayley's uh, farmers, George Dowsland, suffered the loss of a hand in a, an agricultural accident, a fairly common occurrence in those days. But Cayley set to, with the help of Thomas Vick, designing and building a mechanically articulated artificial hand. Prince Albert heard of this and expressed an interest, so Cayley arranged for the prince to meet Dowsland and invited the prince to shake him by the hand, which the prince dutifully did. In 1935, this silver disc turned up in a jeweller's shop in Scarborough. Luckily, the jeweller realised that what he'd got might be some of significance, and so he appealed to the Science Museum for advice, and it is now in their collection. Now, in the left-hand photograph, you can see that Cayley has initialed this, GC, and given the date, 1799. But this marks a major change compared with the past. In the past, People had jumped off towers, flapping wings in emulation of bird flight. Invariably, they'd ended in disaster. What Cayley is in indicating here 
is a separation, a complete separation of the lifting system from the propulsion system. What you see is a sail-like wing fixed and set above a boat-like fuselage. Propulsion is by an oars arrangement driving wafters, which I think later emerged as rather like a Venetian blind assembly, where for the power stroke the blind is shut, and for the return stroke the loos are opened up to produce less resistance. Directional control is provided by the cruciform tail sticking out at the back. So the vertical elements of this can be used to turn the nose left and right, rotating the aeroplane about a vertical axis. The horizontal elements can be turned up and down to make the nose go up and down, rotating the aeroplane about a spanwise axis. The one control element missing is an ability to roll the aeroplane about a fore and aft axis, roll control in other words, and this deficiency remained throughout Cayley's life and was really only solved by the Wright brothers eventually. Now in the right hand photograph you see Cayley thinking scientifically about the problem of flight. What you see is a flat plate with the air approaching it at an angle. And Cayley's assumption is that the air resistance produced by this would be perpendicular to the plate due to the pressure differences over the two sides of the plate. But then he uses a triangle of forces to split that air, total air resistance into a drag force and also a lift force. The problem was that nobody knew how much lift you could get out of an angled plate. So Cayley set about measuring it. And to do it, he used this apparatus called a whirling arm, first used by Benjamin Robbins in 1747. The idea is that you wind a length of string round the vertical shaft, take the free end of the string over a pulley and put a weight on the end of the string. So you let the weight fall under gravity, which spins the vertical shaft round. But this vertical shaft is connected to a horizontal arm carrying the test body. So the whirling arm whirls round and you can actually measure the drag force by that. Now what Cayley did was modify this arrangement by inserting a hinge at the junction between the vertical shaft and the arm. So the arm acted as a lever balance and by putting a suitable weight on the plate itself and making sure that the thing settled down with the arm rotating in the horizontal plane, he had a measure of the lift force produced by the whirling plate. He tested, in fact, two, at two speeds and various incidences at three degrees intervals up to about 20 degrees. In 1954, A.H. Yates, in an article in Flight magazine, showed the results produced by Cayley, but now replotted in terms of a modern quantity called the lift coefficient, CL. Now, the thing to get hold of about CL, if you're not familiar with it, is that it's proportional to the lift force, but takes account of different speeds, different plate areas, and even different densities. So you could even do the test in water, for example, not just air or any other gas. And these, you see, are plotted against the incidence alpha in degrees. Now, the beauty of this presentation is that if the results are accurate, all the data points should collapse onto a single line. Now, given that Cayley's experiment was a tricky one to do, there is a certain amount of scatter but the scatter is nicely around the labelled curve there, which is labelled ESDU. It's produced by modern data provided by the Engineering Science Data Unit. And I think you can see that Cayley was getting basically rather good results for his lift force. Now, as you'd imagine, a square flat plate is not going to be a particularly good lifting surface. So here what I've done is add the green curve. 
Now, this is for a wing which is symmetric in section, top to bottom, and has an extremely large span compared with its chord. Cayley's square plate, of course, span and chord are equal to each other, so its aspect ratio is 1. Now, in the green curve, we've got a very high aspect ratio wing, and it's given by the equation at the bottom there, it's 2 pi times the sine of the angle of incidence. And this came from the new wing theory, lift theory, produced by two people independently, Martin Wilhelm Kutter in Munich and Nikolai Igorovich Shukovsky in Moscow. And this had emerged by about 1910. So you can see that Cayley's lift performance had a long way to go compared with what you might aspire to nowadays. On the other hand, here I'm adding the red curve. And this came from an idea of fluid flow produced by Newton in 1687. And the idea is that fluid is composed of discrete particles that don't interact at all, but flow along in parallel straight lines until they hit the object. And there in the collision, they lose momentum and thereby create the force of air resistance. Now, Newton didn't actually apply this to an angled plate, but this was done later by the Swiss mathematician Leonhard Euler in 1745. And the result that comes out is that CL in this case is equal to twice the square of the sine of the angle of incidence. Now, Many people believed this red curve. It came from effectively Newton's method. Euler, having derived it, said that as to the fluid model, this is contrary to the nature of all fluid matter, and in the whole world no such substance is to be found. Nonetheless, it serves to lay a basis for the understanding of resistance. And this sine-squared incidence relation rumbled on throughout the 19th century, was finally dispatched by some experiments by Samuel Langley in the early 1890s. His experiments show quite clearly that this didn't work. Cayley, in his note notebook, debates the sine-squared incidence relation, concludes that he doesn't believe it, and believes, as it turned out more or less correctly, it was more like a sine relationship. Cayley's entry in his notebook at the end of the whirling arm experiments comes out with a really rather surprising comment. In effect, he says, I now know what a plate will do when it's whirling in a circle, but will it do the same thing if it's going in a straight line? And to sort that out, he produced this, the world's first aeroplane. What we have here is a simple glider a pole fuselage with the wings set at an angle on it of 60 degrees and at the back end a cruciform tail attached by a bit of wire so you can set it at various angles and in this case it's set at an angle of 11 and a half degrees and with it set like this this glider sailed presumably across Brompton Dale as he says at a steady speed of 15 feet per second at an angle of 18 degrees below the horizontal. So this really is the first flight of the world's first modern aeroplane. To remind you of where we are time-wise, here is a depiction of the Battle of Trafalgar in October 1805, less than a year after Cayley's glider flight. This is, if you like, <laughs> the state of air power at that time, and I mean this in the sense of the ability of moving air to push things around. Going back to the glider of 1804, you see that the tail at the back of the glider must be producing quite a bit of lift. In fact, it turns out to be about 12% of the total glider lift. The other feature of the glider, of course, is that it must be deriving its thrust force from the weight component along the line of travel along the glide path. If you multiply that by the speed, you get the power. 
provided by gravity and this turns out to be 0.002 horsepower small but still finite now from the analysis of the glider one thing that drops straight out is that from the gliding angle of 18 degrees the lift to drag ratio the reciprocal as it turns out of the tangent of 18 degrees is a shade over three now in 1983 one of our students at Manchester in his final year undertook a project which entailed building a replica of this glider and he tested this in our laboratory and it sailed majestically across the laboratory at exactly the speed and angle glide angle that Cayley had found so this was I think a genuine replica of Cayley's aeroplane. Now the other thing to notice is that in fact the aeroplane sails not at the six degree setting angle that Cayley supposed it was but in fact it was reared up at an angle of about 20 degrees so the aeroplane's wing would have been slightly above the horizontal as it floated past you and from memory I think that I observed this with Jackson's replica. Now how do you get a good lift to drag ratio? Well the answer is provided by this equation that drops out of basic aerodynamic theory and the important bits on the right hand side are the two red bits. First of all there's capital A the wing aspect ratio the wing span divided by the average chord and that is divided by the drag coefficient at zero lift. Now the drag coefficient like the lift coefficient is proportional to the drag but takes account of different speeds different wing areas and different air densities but the important particular value here is the case when the wing is producing no lift and this essentially gives you a measure of how well streamlined the aeroplane is you want a very low value for that now when we turn to the bird world what sort of values do we get well the sparrow a value of four Cayley's glider remember was three but the sparrow is a chubby little chap not very good value of CD naught and its wings are quite low aspect ratio so hence its value around four is supposed the albatross on the other hand the wandering albatross of the southern oceans very different bird the highest aspect ratio of the avian world and a very well streamlined fuselage and modern data suggests that it can be as high as 20. The right flyer on the other hand well in this case I'm relying on some wind tunnel tests carried out by Padgate and Lawrence in the early 2000s at Liverpool University on a model of the right flyer of 1905 the flyer number three which aerodynamically is very similar to the 1903 flyer and they came up with a value of 5.6 using the calculation at the top of the screen comes up with a value of 5.7 so let's be generous and round it up and call it 6. The Spitfire on the other hand and now we've moved into the fast monoplane area we're talking about a 13.8 value considerable improvement and then the big airliners Boeing 747 that is cruise Mach number 17.7 so we're starting to approach the albatross and more modern airliners have just about reached that. Concorde on the other hand that is cruise Mach number Mach 2 is down at 7.5. On the other hand modern gliders high performance gliders with very high aspect ratio wings and very streamlined fuselages they can be in fact as high as 70. As these data illustrate and the equation at the top emphasizes to get a good value of the lift to drag ratio you need a high value of aspect ratio capital A and a low value of the drag coefficient CD naught. Why does a lift drag ratio which is high matter? Well the answer comes from this equation known as the Breguet range equation. As far as I'm aware nobody has ever been able to connect this to Louis Breguet the French aviation pioneer 
are in fact the firm that took his name. But it comes from an analysis of a rather simplistic scenario. You have an aeroplane which is fully loaded with cargo, fuel and so on, and has a gross weight WG to the right in the equation. Now, you let the aeroplane fly until it's completely run out of fuel, at which point its weight is reduced to WWF, weight without fuel. Now, on the other parts of the equation, the bits at the front on the right-hand side, the aeroplane is in fact a piston-engine-propeller combination, and eta, the Greek character eta, is the propeller efficiency. And that is divided by the specific fuel consumption of the engine, which is the weight of fuel consumed per second, say, divided by the power output. But again, the vital bit in the equation is the red bit, the lift-to-drag ratio. And if you know all those things, then you can calculate how far the aeroplane has flown the range R. And what's obvious from this is that if you could, for example, double the lift-to-drag ratio, you'd double the range. The range is always proportional to the lift-to-drag ratio. Now, you can do the same sort of analysis for a jet-propelled aeroplane, and you get very similar answers from it. So the answer is, lift-to-drag ratio is important if you want to have the aeroplane flying for a long time, a long distance. Going back to the 1804 glider, in 2001, another of our aero students at Manchester, Graham Potter, for his final year project, put a model of that platform of the glider into a wind tunnel and measured its lift and drag characteristics. The CL graph that he obtained lies very close to Cayley's whirling arm square plate. Now, also what he did was to spend a lot of time doing detailed flow visualisation observations of what was going on, particularly on the upper surface of this wing, this plate. And what he discovered was basically, in my mind, an aerodynamicist nightmare. What happens is that all the way along the sharp leading edge, the curved leading edge, the flow separates, some of it coils around and produces a vortex sitting behind the leading edge. Similar separation occurs on the slantwise rear edges and in the middle of the plate you get a mess of vortices and turbulence. And of course because of that the lift is not particularly good. In 1808, Cayley is flying another glider, and from this he realises that the centre of pressure on the wing is not at the centre of the area, as he'd assumed for the 1804 glider, but is further forward. And as his sketch shows, it's in the ratio of three parts ahead of the centre of pressure and seven parts behind. In 1809, Cayley produced what he called is solid of least resistance. What he did was catch a trout, measure its girth distribution, divide that by three as a good enough approximation to pi, and plot the diameter distribution so as to produce an axisymmetric body shown in the sketch here, this sketch. Now, if you take his construction lines to the left as uh, an indication of the particle paths of the Newton theory for fluid flow, you will see that the particles all flow along these straight lines until they collide with the body. But the point is that there will be no collisions after the ma maximum thickness of the body in the shade of the beam. Now, many people believe the Newton model and therefore concluded that the resistance produced by a body is due to its forward shape. What you made the shape of the back end didn't matter at all. But clearly Cayley is believing that the back end in fact is very important. And he went on to explain this in his later paper. Now, in 1954, Theodor von Kármán, the eminent aerodynamicist, pointed out that this shape is almost identical to an NACA low drag aerofoil section. 
In 1810, Cayley provided his explanation for this in a paper he wrote that it has been found by experiment that the shape of the hinder part of the spindle is of as much importance as that of the front in diminishing resistance. This arises from the partial vacuity created behind the obstructing body. He continues, if there be no solid to fill up this space, a deficiency of hydrostatic pressure exists within it and is transferred to the spindle. This is seen distinctly near the rudder of a ship in full sail, where the water is much below the level of the surrounding sea. I fear, however, he concludes, that the whole of this subject is of so dark a nature as to be more usefully investigated by experiment than by reasoning. Now, the world had to wait until 1904 and the emergence of the thin viscous boundary layer concept from Prantle uh, provide an explanation of why this is happening, why you need to use uh, aerodynamically streamlined bodies. What Cayley has been describing is in fact the consequence of boundary layer separation, which creates low pressures, a partial vacuum at the back of a badly shaped body, and this sucks the body as much backwards as it's pushed backwards by the overpressure at the front. Now, although Prantle came up with the boundary layer concept in 1904, quite independently, the British engineer Frederick Lanchester basically came to the same idea in 1907, but his ideas were not quite as well developed as Prantle's. Cayley published his thinking on what he called aerial navigation in a three-part paper which appeared in Nicholson's journal between 1809 and 1810. Now, he was prompted to do this because, you might say, of an accident. In 1809, the papers were reporting that a certain Jakob Dagen had flown in Vienna. Now, what the media had failed to report was that Jakob Dagen had been carried aloft, flapping his wings beneath a balloon. Most people disbelieved it, but Cayley believed that it had been possible, and so he decided to tell the world what he thought about it, how to do it. Now, Cayley's paper sets out the basic scientific principles for aeronautics and he covers the, the four main subjects areas which really have to be the basis of any aeronautical curriculum. He wrote about aerodynamics, aircraft structures, flight dynamics including stability and control and propulsion. Now as we've seen already on propulsion he was stymied. All he could do really was to talk about what the current state of steam engine performance was like and where improvements might occur. On aircraft structures, he was on firmer ground. He recommended using hollow tubular members supplemented by wire bracing. On aerodynamics, he showed a rudimentary understanding of how wings produce lift, but as we've seen already, uh, had a very prescient uh, appreciation of the sources of drag and how to reduce it. On flight dynamics, but particularly stability and control, he recognised that the centre of pressure on a wing moves with change of speed, change of incidence, and therefore recognised that the tailplane setting had to change so as to retain balance in the air. But as yet, he wasn't quite seeing the tailplane as producing a stabilising influence. He did recognise, however, that using wing dihedral was a good idea. It improved lateral stability, but his explanation for how it worked was really rather simplistic. But there is no mention in the triple paper of Cayley's whirling arm experiments or, in fact, his 1804 glider. So these vital initial steps in Cayley's work would not have been known to the Wright brothers. So that was the state of play for Cayley at about 1810. But in this paper, he put the whole problem in a nutshell. The whole problem, he said, is confined within these limits. 
to make a surface support a given weight by the application of power to the resistance of air. In one of his 1810 parts of the paper, he writes, last year, and so presumably he's talking about 1809, I made a machine having a surface of 300 square feet. Its steerage and steadiness were perfectly proved and it would sail obliquely downward in any direction according to the set of the rudder. He continues, even in this state, when any person ran forward in it with his full speed, taking advantage of a gentle breeze in front, it would bear upward so strongly as scarcely to allow him to touch the ground, and would frequently lift him up and convey him several yards together. Now this arguably might be the first man-carrying glider flight. After the triple paper, Cale is silent for quite some time on the subject of the aeroplane, but in 1818 he writes to Lord John Campbell, and in it he describes briefly a new glider, and here's his sketch of it. Now, this looks very similar to the 1804 glider, but there are two changes. One is the incorporation of dihedral on the wing, which he'd recommended in the triple paper. And the other thing to notice is that the tailplane, as he puts it, should be set a little up, presumably producing either a reduced load, upward load on the tailplane, or even a down load, depending on the angle of attack of the glider. This suggests that the glider has a forward centre of gravity. Unfortunately, Cayley does not say why he favours this configuration. After that, Cayley turned away from the aeroplane again, concentrating on other interests, which in fact did include airship designs, one of which introduced propeller propulsion. But in 1843, William Samuel Henson produced his patent for what he called an aerial steam carriage, shown here. Now this was steam powered and it drove two propellers, tailplane and wing layout, more or less as Cayley had suggested. The big difference really is the higher aspect shape ratio wing that Henson introduces and the structure is supported by king posts and a lot of bracing wires. Henson tried to form uh, an aerial transit company using the steam carriage and to raise money produced these really rather lovely old coloured engravings, in this case showing the aerial steam carriage flying over London. Another one I've seen shows it flying over the pyramids. The message was clear, give us your money folks and you too could be flying anywhere in the world in it. Well, the great British public were not quite so daft and the whole scheme fell apart. But actually what happened was that Henson wrote Cayley addressing him as the father of aerial navigation and appealed for help. Now, as far as we know, Cayley didn't give him any financial help, but gave him sound advice. By now, Cayley's 70, and here he is in, until recently, the only known photograph of him. More recently, uh, another photograph has emerged in sepia, showing him, we think, in his 80s. But Cayley's response to Henson's design produced another paper from him, basically criticising the Henson design because of the high aspect ratio wing. He didn't believe it was structurally safe. But not one to criticise without offering advice, Cayley then suggested, instead of going for higher aspect ratio wings, why not stick with the usual lower aspect ratio wings which he'd previously favoured, and make them into a multiplane construction. Cayley put the multiplane construction into practice in this glider of 1849. It carried a 10-year-old boy across Brompton Dale, hence the name Boy Carrier. Now, the interesting features of this glider are the triplane construction, and also the fact that the dihedral has been incorporated in each of the wings. But the other feature to notice is the duplicated tail unit. 
The bottom unit in Cayley's sketch here is clearly still the steering, but the upper unit appears to be fixed. And Cayley's notebook at the time gives no indication of why it's there. That was to come later. In 1852, Cayley published in Mechanics Magazine a design for what he called a governable parachute. Now, the idea was that it would produce egress from a balloon, uh, but it wouldn't fall vertically downwards as a parachute, it would glide down as a glider. And he's pretty specific about how it's to be constructed, in particular, the central beam running fore and aft along the middle of the wing. He tells us that it's got to be hollow, it gives the dimensions, how it's got to be constructed and what materials to use. He also tells us about the positioning of the upper tail unit. He says that it should be tried at a few angles round about the negative incidence condition and whichever produces the steadiest and most secure course against pitching should be fixed at that condition. He tells us that the glider's weight is 150 pounds. He then doubles it to account for the weight of what he calls the aeronaut. He tells us what the wing area is and the areas of the tail unit and so on. So he's pretty specific about the whole thing. Now, did he actually build this? Is it the boy carrier re-rigged as a monoplane? Or did he perhaps do model tests on it? The answer to all those is, well, we don't know. Except that Cayley is very clear about how it's going to perform. He gives a gliding angle for it, which suggests that it would produce lift to drag ratios in the region five to six. In 1973, John Spruill, who had a long career in gliding, decided that he would supervise the construction of a replica of the, of the governable parachute and see if it would fly. Now, to let the cat out of the bag a bit early here, I'm showing a photograph of it actually in flight. The pilot is Derek Piggott, who was the chief flying instructor at uh, Lasham Airfield and also a champion glider pilot at the time. He's piling, piloting it. But the reason I'm showing the photograph is to draw attention to the upper tail unit. Clearly, it's producing a download. You can see the glider here. It's been towed aloft in the standard glider fashion. Here is the replica in all its glory. It was built by Southdown Aero Services at Lasham and was first tested there. Later flights were conducted at home on Spalding Moor and then, appropriately, a flight across Brompton Dale. This was filmed by Anglia TV for a programme on Cayley. The flight begins with a smoothly executed takeoff, towed aloft by in fact a Volvo estate car in the usual glider manner. Once aloft, Piggott begins to explore the possibility of controlling it adequately, and this he finds he, finds he can do. The flight ends with a neatly executed smooth landing. Now, as Bernard Matthews used to say about his Christmas product, bootiful, just bootiful. But this, I'd suggest, was no turkey. The last record of Cayley's aeronautical activities comes from the recollections of his granddaughter, Dora Thompson, who remembered in old age that around the age of nine, she'd been visiting uh, Brompton and had witnessed some kind of flight across Brompton Dale. She thought the pilot was the coachman and he leapt out in some agitation at the end of the flight, according to Mrs. Thompson, saying, please Sir George, I wish to give notice. I was hired to drive and not to fly. Now, census records indicate that there was no coachman at Brompton at the time, but there was a groom, John Appleby, around the age of 20, so it could have been him. Now, was this flying machine the governable parachute, the boy carrier, whatever? We simply don't know. Uh, and Mrs. Thompson couldn't really remember, I think. Cayley's remains are in the family vault in the parish church of All Saints at Brompton. This 
It's also the venue for the marriage of William Wordsworth and Mary Hutchinson of Gallows Hill Farm in 1802. With apologies to other pioneers, notably Otto Lilienthal and his hang gliders, I've jumped ahead about 50 years to show you this iconic photograph of the Wrights near Kitty Hawk in December 1903. Here they're achieving for the first time manned powered, sustained and controllable flight. What you see is Orville lying prone, piloting the flyer, whilst Wilbur has run beside it, steadying the wingtip as the flyer trundled along its launch rail. Now for the Cayley gliders I've discussed earlier, their thrusts came from their weight components acting along the downward glide paths, but no such gravity provided thrust is available for sustained horizontal flight. As Cayley had understood, for that you need an engine propulsion system. The Wrights had achieved this, and this was the game changer. There are two features to note in this respect. First, the engine. They believed they could buy a suitable engine more or less off the shelf. That turned out not to be the case, so they set to designing and building their own lightweight petrol engine. This alone was a notable technical achievement at the time. The second feature to note is their propeller system, a pair of propellers operating in contra-rotation so as to balance the torque reactions on the airframe. But it's the propeller's blade design that's of interest here. Now the Wrights had tested about 50 different wing shapes in their little wind tunnel and had amassed the best amount of wing performance data of anyone at that time. But they realised that propellers are essentially rotating wings. The problem is that in the rotational plane, the propeller's speed near the root is much less than near the tip. Taking account of the constant head-on air velocity, what is needed is a progressive incidence change, a twist along the blade, so that each blade element produces the most forward thrust. Their calculations here are probably their finest theoretical achievement. Incidentally, we didn't learn about this until the early 1950s, when the right papers were finally published. The propeller efficiency they achieved was around 66%, whereas nowadays we'd look for 80% plus, but their value was significantly ahead of anyone at that time. The other feature to note in the photograph is the Wright's use of a four-plane control surface. Now, Cayley had ins insisted that the aeroplane must be stable. When disturbed, in, it must be automatically right itself. The evidence of the fixed upper tailplane on the boy carrier and the governable parachute indicates that he'd understood this stabilizing function. But the right flyers, in contrast, were unstable in pitch. The Wrights seemed untroubled by this because they developed a method for correcting it. They used the movable foreplane not only as a control surface, but also, I suspect, rather like the artificial horizon on modern aircraft. Their method for controlling instability was then, I'd suggest, the earliest example of the fly-by-wire system used on modern combat aircraft. These are unstable because the benefit is enhanced manoeuvrability, the fly-by-wire system then being needed to correct instability. In the Wright's case, the instability detector is the pilot's eye, watching for any pitching of the foreplane. That information is fed to the computer, the pilot's brain, programmed with past experience to determine the corrective action. That action is then fed through the mechanical wires to the foreplane's actuator, which changes the surface's incidence to give the required correction. With skill and experience, a pilot can do this at 30 or so miles per hour, but at 10 times that speed or more, the pilot would be, to say the least, in severe difficulty. In such cases, the very fast response of an electronic system is necessary. But this use of the foreplane as a stability detector, I suspect, is one reason, there are others, why the Wrights retain this configuration on their powered flyers 
as they had in their earlier gliders. The other advance introduced by the Wrights is the control system. It's the one feature that was missing in Cayley's recipe for the aeroplane, and that is roll control. Now, the Wrights had noticed that buzzards in flight tend to deflect their wingtip feathers so as to either roll or correct a roll disturbance. And so they realised that what they needed to do was to effectively produce a differential lift system across the wing. And these differences in lift from one side to the other would produce a rolling effect, a rolling moment, which would either roll the aeroplane or correct roll. Now they tested this in 1899 with this biplane kite and you can see that by using the control rods on it, you can produce this helicoidal twisting of the wing. Wing warping was a term introduced by their friend Octave Chanute. I've now leapt ahead again, in this case by 33 years, to get to the age of the fast monoplane. And here we have the Spitfire prototype K5054, which first flew in March 1936. Uh, the chap in the photograph with the forage cap is King Edward VIII, whose reign, you might recall, lasted a good deal shorter than the reign of the Spitfire. Now here I'm showing this photograph of the Spitfire to illustrate its distinctive wing shape. It was unique at the time. But in that connection, I'm showing this drawing from a paper by Ludwig Prantl, in 1918. This is a theoretical paper which establishes the theory of modern wings and in it he illustrates the results of their research, their mathematical research, by showing this wing shape. Now it's identical to that of the Spitfire. How that got onto the aeroplane itself by 1936 is another story which I don't have time to go on into here. And now I've fast forwarded another 30 odd years and there's another but very distinctive shape in the sky, Concorde with its sharp leading edges for supersonic flight. Now with regard to wing sweepback, here I'm pointing out that the idea is to sweep the wing back because it reduces the strength of the shock waves on the wing which create wave drag. Now the idea was proposed by Adolf Bussemann from Göttingen and he gave a lecture on this at the Volta Congress in Rome, the subject being high speed flight and this was in 1935. So the idea is that if you look at the drawing above you'll notice that the head-on air velocity has then been split into a component which is normal to the leading edge and that's smaller than the head-on air velocity. Similarly, the head-on Mach number is reduced to the value for the normal Mach number and that produces this reduction in wave drag. Now, in 1935, people rather found this amusing who on earth was thinking about supersonic flight then? And in fact, the man who'd organised the Congress, Gaetano Crocco, produced a cartoon to be put onto the menu for the closing dinner. And this cartoon showed an aeroplane with everything swept back, including the propeller blades. Now, three years later, at Göttingen, 1938, and Albert Betts realised that the same argument could be applied to high subsonic flight. If you sweep the wings back there, that would reduce the effects of compressibility. Wind tunnel tests confirmed it. The information was fed to the German aircraft industry. And we saw the consequences of that emerging during the Second World War. Here I'm showing the performance improvement of aeroplanes from Cayley's time, more or less up to the present day. What we have in the first case is Cayley's governable parachute, and the speed he anticipated seems to suggest it would glide at about 20 miles an hour. Now, the weight component along the glide path is the force of propulsion for the glider, and if you multiply that by the speed, you find, like the 1804 glider and the other gliders, 
there's a gravity drive here and it's producing roughly about three horsepower. I put it in brackets to indicate that it's really not a motor, it's just gravity drive. Now the value of CD0, the indication of how well streamlined the shape is, I did a very dubious calculation on this and came up with this figure of 0.035. I cannot defend it, it's more like a guesstimate. We're on firmer ground when we come to the right flyer. It flew at above just over 30 miles an hour on a 12 horsepower engine and the Padgate and Lawrence wind tunnel tests for the flyer came up with a value for CD0 of 0.1, so that's quite high. Now, in contrast, the Spitfire, let's say flying at about 300, 360 miles an hour on just over a 1,000 horsepower, had a drag coefficient of 0.20. Now, let me ask what appears to be really a rather silly question at that point, <coughs> although the the argument will be quite instructive. How much power would it take to make the right flyer at 30 miles an hour fly at something like the speed of the Spitfire, 300 odd miles an hour, in other words, 10 times faster, given that drag coefficient for the right flyer of 0 0.1? The answer that comes out from the calculation is that it would require 10,000 horsepower to do this whereas the Spitfire did it on a, roughly a tenth of that. Now, how did it do it? Well, part of the answer is in the value of CD0. You'll notice that the CD0 for the Spitfire is a fifth the value of the right flyer. Now, wing planform area comes into the calculation, as it turns out. And the wing of the Spitfire, as it happens, has about half the area of the total wing area of the right flyer. It's about the same area as just one of the wings. So that combination of one-fifth and a half produces a factor of one-tenth on the power calculation of 10,000 horsepower and tells us that it should be doable at 1,000 horsepower, which is what happened. And this is a tribute, really, to the advances in aerodynamics in producing much better streamlined shapes and better lift understanding and this produced significant improvement in aeroplane performance. Now, in the case of the Mustang, uh, that has a more powerful Merlin engine, uh, a bit faster, and its CD0 is a little bit less. Now, some people have attributed this to the use of the laminar flow, so-called laminar flow wing, but others have argued, and I think they're more correct in this, that it showed a better implementation of Meredith's ducted radiator system. It produces less drag there. Now when we come to Concorde, here we have a slender, beautifully streamlined aeroplane which, well below the speed of sound, has a correspondingly low value of CD0. 0.007, the James Bond of airliners, you might say. But its cruise back number encumbered by all those nasty drag-increasing shock waves, its drag coefficient has roughly doubled. Now, jet engine people talk in terms of thrust in pounds or newtons rather than horsepower, but you only have to multiply the thrust by the speed achieved and you have the power. In Concorde's case, as you see, it's enormous. Well, this is really the end of the story, and to remind you where it all started, I'm showing again the portrait of Cayley. Mind you, the inventor of the aeroplane, and all that I've talked about has flowed from that. Having come to the end of my story, it's now time for me to thank a number of people. Firstly, my wife Brenda, who took the Scarborough and Brompton photographs. She's much better behind a camera than I am, and she's also much better at getting people into conversation. At our photo trip to Brompton, we went to the Cayley Arms in Brompton Village in those days. Do you get many people asking about Cayley? she asked the landlord. Now, the landlord was a straight Yorkshire chap who didn't pussyfoot around. 
Aye, well, he replied, we get these foreigners, you know. T'other week, we had this American turn up. Damn near fell down and kissed the earth. Never seen oak like it. I've told this story in my native West Riding, but I suspect the good people of the East Riding are a little more polished. Another person I must thank is my old friend and former Manchester colleague, Peter Laws. He used to teach the hard stuff at Manchester, stability and control and air elasticity, whereas I just swanned around with the easy bits like aerodynamics. He's been sitting here patiently while I've burbled on today. In his old age, Peter has turned himself into a computer geek. He's not only taught me how to do PowerPoint presentations, but he's also provided the wherewithal for me to add this audio recording. So thank you, Peter. Two other people I must thank are Brian Riddle, former chief librarian of the Royal Aeronautical Society, and his successor, Tony Pilmer. Both have provided invaluable information over many years. The Cayley notebooks, I should add, are kept at the Society's library. As to what's on the screen, if you'd like to learn more about Cayley, let me encourage you to Google on Journal of Aeronautical History. This is an online-only journal run by the Royal Aeronautical Society, and it's completely free for everyone, not just to members of the Society. There you will find my three papers on Cayley, and also my suggestion as to how the German wing of 1918 got onto the Spitfire of 1936. In this connection, I must thank Kit Mitchell, who campaigned hard to establish the journal in the first place, but then went on to become its distinguished editor, a role now taken over by Robert Hopkins with equal distinction. The journal provides a wealth of historical information. There you'll find my friend, the late Brian Brinkworth, providing a technical assessment of the Gloucester E-2839, Britain's first jet aeroplane, and also his lengthy survey of spinning research in Britain. You'll also find my very good friend, the late Frank Armstrong, providing an authoritative account of the development of the jet engine in Britain. There are lots of other interesting articles that could get your teeth into. The evolution of flying clothing, the development of blind landing systems, are just two topics which come to mind. But to repeat my earlier point, the articles are all completely free to download onto your computer. Finally, my thanks to you, my audience, for sticking with me this long. I hope you found it interesting. So with that, good day to you all.